0: Okay, so if you'll open with me to First Corinthians chapter 6, I'm actually going to start reading a little earlier than that. Paul has been struggling with the people of Corinth. Corinth, you may know, is a really a hotbed of the Greek and Roman philosophers. And they chose their leaders by who had the most successful life, who had the best speaking, who had the most... Uh, followers who had the most money, who was the most eloquent, and sadly this crept into the church, and the church was thinking along those lines. So Paul is struggling with them. You know, they're being offered greater things than what Paul can offer. They understood that you know, the best you can hope for, what the disciple can hope for, is to be like their master. And they seem to be implying, if you follow Paul, you'll be like him. Being stowed, flogged, shipwrecked, hungry, thirsty. Is that what you want to be? Or worse, you'd be like his bastard, kneeled on a cross. And so they were trying to lead people away from the gospel and away from God to follow themselves. And this scholasticism had crept into the church and Paul has been battling against it. And he's shown that through the fruits of the gospel, the change in their life, You know, the the unbeliever is hard and cold to God. When God takes out his heart of stone, he gives him a heart of flesh. And he now understands and believes and worships the one true living God. There's a significant change in their life. And that change, he says, is the testimony of my ministry. The ministry is not about me, it's about God. And he's trying to shift their focus to where it needs to be and dealing with these false pastors and these outside influences. So when we get finally to chapter 6, he is once again taking a moment to stress to them the the importance of the true ministry, the importance of the right ministry. I don't know that. I was actually meant to read before that. I'm going to start at verse 16, but we'll pick up, I'll go through here, of the previous chapter. So in, in this battle, all has been speaking that, them, and now he's turned his mind to the ministry of reconciliation. So chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We up in chapter 6. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God. With the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true; as unknowing and yet well known, as we dying, behold, we live; as punished, and yet not killed; as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing; as poor, yet making many rich; as having nothing, yet possessing everything. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you now to open your word, we pray, Lord, that you would calm our minds from the cares of this world, still our hearts, that we may hear your voice, and encourage our hearts with your spirit, that we might live out the things we learn and the things we know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be looking today primarily at verse 3. Last week, which you didn't hear, I worked on the first two verses. And coming to the third verse now, I think it deserves a little more thought in our care. We need to start in this verse with the text. If you have a version other than the ESV, you'll find that it probably says something different than what I read. The King James in this text says, give no offense in anything that the ministry may not be blamed. Whereas the ESV has, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Another slightly longer version, which follows the King James, the NASV says, giving no reason for taking offense at anything, so that the ministry may not be disturbing. Now, in the Greek text, there's no difference. Everybody's working with the same words. The issue is the translation of those words, one word in particular, the one translated offense by the King James and obstacle uh, by the ESV. That is a unique verb in the New Testament. It only occurs one time here. So it's really hard to then look at other places and figure out what it means. Modern texts, modern translators will give a modern meaning to it, and that meaning is... That it has some doing something which causes another person to stumble, and that's the Greek meaning, and modern scholars have access to a lot more Greek literature from that day Greek literature so they've come, their definition is defined a little better than it was four hundred and fifty years ago and that's why I would probably follow that. I don't think either grammatically or linguistically there's any way to consider that meaning to be um, an offense. It's an obstacle, something that causes people to stumble. And it's combined with the word forgive or cause. And the result together with those is that we do, he doesn't do anything that would cause another one to stumble or to hinder them from coming to the knowledge of God, to the, coming to the gospel, the gospel ministry that he's been speaking about. I think that idea was missed in the King James and makes it sound like it's just something Paul might do that would cause people not to listen or not to be able to come forward in their knowledge and in their practice of goblins. And that's really missing the point. He's not saying, he's not defending really his own personal reputation. Are you it? Why would somebody want to listen to Paul if Paul was a bad person, said bad things, did bad things, abused people? Nobody would want to listen. We understand that, but that's not what his focus is. Paul has already assured us that those things are wrong. In 2 Timothy 2, 22, twenty six, he talks about you know, not being abrasive, not being abusive, but being patient and long-suffering, the hope that the Holy Spirit would change them and that they will understand. Peter says similar things in 1 Peter 3, that you know we need with honor and respect deal with our violence. Paul's not talking about that problem here. He's talking about something different. He has assured us already that it wasn't Paul's power that brought about this transformation in people's lives. You see that in verse 1 of this section, we're working together with him, with God. You no. Know, Paul is not the one who converts salt. Paul is not the one who gives people faith. Paul is the messenger who brings the message of faith and of reconciliation. God, as, he, as we read, he is an ambassador of the ministry of reconciliation, an ambassador of God. When the Corinthians were posturing about each other, you know, following the Greek and Roman philosophers that I mentioned earlier, you know, I, one was saying, "I follow Paul," I follow all of the other. And they were fighting about who was the superior teacher to follow. Paul rebukes them rather sharply, and he says, "You know, for when one says I follow Paul and another says I follow Apollos, are not you being merely human? Meaning, fleshly and you know, pride of life? Isn't that what you're concerned with? What is Apollos and what is God? Servant to whom you believe, and the Lord assigned you each his task. I planted." Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants, nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. It is the Holy Spirit working in us that gives us faith. It is the Holy Spirit working in us that causes us to turn from our sins and turn to God and seek to glorify Him with a more obedient life. It is the Holy Spirit that works in our hearts, that we would desire that path. It is not Paul's. And it is not these false teachers that are besmirching his name and leading people astray. I don't understand why, but many seem to think Paul here is being a little petty, defending his pride and his honor. He's not so much defending himself, but he's defending the cause of Christ. He's defending the true gospel spoken fully and openly without hindering it. And as the minister of the new covenant, minister of the ministry of reconciliation, he is defending those things against those who would take away from. Them. And I think if we consider the text context, we'll see that a little better. So the context verse 1 through 3 is important. Verse 3 is linking back to verse 1 and 2. In verse 2, there was that great encouragement to receive the gospel, you know, not to wait. Now is the day. This grace of God has come to you. Always the grace of God, the grace of hearing the, about the ministry of reconciliation, hearing the gospel message, hearing the calls of godly and holy life. Verse 1 concerns that receiving of that grace, which is him coming to them and speaking to them and teaching them. Now is the time. You have heard the message. Put it into action. Believe if the Lord has so opened your heart. And now he says in verse 3, "Me put no obstacle in the way of anyone coming to you. We don't make any trouble for you that you can't come. Now, literally, this cause no occasion of stumbling in anything is a very complicated and convoluted phrase in the creed. It's referring back to this ministry of reconciliation, as I said, with the working together with God. All is not on his part to be done wrong. It is not on his part that his, he is responsible for before God and answerable to God for it. He says, in that I am doing no wrong. I am not stumbling any, not preventing them from knowing the grace of God. In the context here in Corinth, in his letters to the people, the 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he is telling them, I am defending the one true gospel given by the one true living God. I am not a peddler, chapter 2, verse 17 of 2nd Corinthians. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak. Second Corinthians 2.17. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, "We, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. These men were not so much slandering Paul. they was trying to replace the gospel that Paul was preaching. They were trying to lead men off to follow them, whereas Paul says, follow God. And so they were teaching them the things they wanted to hear, the things that would make them happy. They were putting no stumbling block as far as truth. They were hiding the truth so that men could come and follow them. But without the truth... How can they follow God? It's a sad state of affairs. Uh, we, we've looked at the text and its meaning and, and understand. Paul say he's placing no obstacles in the way of anyone coming to the Gospels, and I want to look at the verse in more detail, meaning its application. <laughs> of course, before that, we need to remind ourselves what we're talking about in the Gospel ministry. We're not talking about just the words on the track that we give to somebody in passing about how to know God. We're talking about a lot more than that. We're talking about fulfillment of the Great Commission. And what is the Great Commission? A lot of people talk about it, but I don't think they've read it clearly. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus comes to them and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. No, disciples, not converts. disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is key. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. The work of the ministry of God, the work of the gospel ministry, is not just to tell somebody the gospel and move on. I shared last week, which most of you didn't hear, so about a minister I knew who was working in Africa. And he was going on these big tours through the region he had access to, sharing the gospel in villages. He said, in one village, I got the the village chief to convert, and we converted the whole village and everybody became a Christian to baptized them all. And he was going to end the story there. And I said, well, did you ever get back to see them again? He said, yes. I said, what were they doing? Oh, they were sacrificing a bloody chicken to Jesus. There's more to the gospel than salvation. We need to teach them to observe everything. And what has Christ commanded? Well, he is the living word of God. He has commanded all of those taught in Scripture. There's no exception. When Ezekiel was doing his ministry, God said to him, you are like the watchman on the wall. If the watchman sees the enemy coming and does not blow the trumpet, men will die and their blood will be on your hand for not, sure, not calling them. Uh, But if you blow the trumpet, and they don't come. They don't take shelter. Your blood is on the road. He says, it's the same for you. If I tell somebody you will die for that sin, and you do not call them to repentance, you will be guilty of their blood. That was Paul's understanding. That was Jesus' teaching. They need to observe everything, and be, the pastor, the teacher, the elder should teach the whole council of God. Not just the parts that make people happy, Not just the parts that cause no, no offense. In his day, Jesus emphatically decried the shepherds of Israel for this sin. For the sin of putting obstacles in people's way from coming to the gospel. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves cannot enter, nor will you allow them who would enter to go in. Matthew twenty-three, thirteen. Paul, in this passage, has in mind all of those things that oppose the kingdom of heaven. Remember Jesus said, difficult is the road and small is the door. Leash the life if you don't help them walk that difficult path, they would find eternal life. Jesus went on to say, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load on people the burdens hard to bear, which you yourselves do not touch, and the burdens with one of your fingers, Luke eleven forty eight. The burden here it is, The teaching of their day, which was salvation comes through obedience to the law, mostly the ceremonial Misunderstanding completely the purpose of the ceremonial law. It wasn't to save you. It was to show you you could not be saved. I I had a lot of struggle with the ceremonial law, understanding it. Till one day, a lizard dropped on my head in Cambodia. And I remember one of the laws said that if Lizard scampers across your your bowl, it's unclean, and if it's ceramic, it should be broken. An earthen vessel, it should be broken. Otherwise, if you eat from it, you're unclean. And, and I realized, how would you ever know if the bowl you're eating from is unclean, that a lizard scampered through it? And then I started to understand. What it's telling me is not that I can go to heaven if I know that a lizard scampered through my bowl. What it's telling me is, there are things I don't know about in my life that are so simple and so offensive to God that even though I haven't recognized them, they will condemn me as unclean. Certainly there are enough things that I do know, I do recognize, that make me that's unclean. God. And only here by the grace of God and the washing of the blood of the Lamb. And that's what the ceremonial law was all about. Point you to your need for salvation beyond yourself. And without that salvation beyond yourself, there is no hope. And no more hope than of perfectly obeying the ceremonial law and all of the things in it. So Jesus emphatically condemned the ministers of his day, and he keeps going on. What was their problem? He tells us what their problem was, and since he's. In scripture, he says, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It wasn't the law that they needed. It was the result of the law pointing them to their need for their Messiah, the Christ. The Jews are multiple times condemned by Jesus because they don't accept the scriptures. They're trying to reinterpret them. They're trying to make them more comfortable, more doable, more, more reasonable than what God said. And in doing that, they're turning people away from what God wants, and thus they're, in a sense, putting a stumbling block, an obstacle, in the way of people having a right life with Christ. They felt... That somehow, if they obeyed the law, they would be saved through that. And they looked for their obedience to the law as their form of salvation. But remember, God is a transcendent being. He's infinite in his holiness. We have corruption in us. But he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He told the Pharisees, or told the people about the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because they weren't perfect, neither are you. You can't get there, be perfection. Only one man has ever obeyed the law perfectly. And that is the God man, Jesus. And unless his perfect obedience is imputed to me, I will never. Be able to enter heaven because I have not done all the things. And I have done the things that God forbids. And not just before I will say. There is hope only in Christ and in his righteousness. As we read in the end of chapter 5 of Second Corinthians. That he might become righteousness for us. For the righteousness of God. So, So we are not perfect. We know all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And worse, we know the wages of sin. Now, the Pharisees were teaching salvation by works, more mostly salvation by obedience to their corrupted version of the law. And they seemed to think that if their sins were outweighed by their righteous deeds, they were good. But it doesn't say that. What, it, what Paul says is very clear. The wages of sin is death. It does not say if your sins outweigh your righteous deeds, you will die. And so their teaching was a stumbling block. If you think you can do it yourself, then you don't need Christ. You don't need the cross. You don't need the vicarious atonement. You don't need his righteousness imputed to you and your sin imputed to him. And so you're putting a stumbling block in people's way. In <laughs> chief, sin leads to death, and not just the first death, the death of this body, but to the second death, the torment in hell, where the worm never dies and the fire <laughs> is never point. Now, some people might wonder, how can I, a sinner then, avoid death? And the answer I have already given, by by having faith in Christ and trusting his righteousness to be imputed to us and our sin imputed to him. And we receive that through faith. That is the only way. The answer is the same from the Old Testament Jew and for the Jew and Gentile of our day. It doesn't change. Paul says that that ceremonial law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was not a means of salvation in itself. But they stumbled. And the Judaizers who followed everywhere he went were telling people, you must be circumcised. You must obey the ceremonial. Paul says, you are throwing a stumbling block in their way. And they're making it hard for them to reach heaven. Obviously, if God has worked in the heart and changed the person they will understand, And God will bring it. To fruition. But they always stumbled, and they always stumbled themselves in that same manner, of trying to get to heaven apart from God. The Jews were like that. He said, The Lord says, My people are, have been lost as sheep, their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away in the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them, and their enemies have said, We are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord. Their habitation of righteousness, the Lord of hope of their fathers, Jeremiah 57, 56 and 7. The Jews were constantly stumbling over this, trying to do things apart from God. And their leaders... We're leading them apart from God, putting their own rules, their own religion on them, and confusing the people, making it harder for them to follow God the way he has prescribed. Sinful men, especially the teachers, always stumble people who want to turn to God. Remember what God said, Jesus said himself, Yeah, you shut up the kingdom of heaven because you're not going in and you don't want others to go. I think that's part of the reason. We see this in the New Testament quite a bit. Jude felt it necessary to write his letter. He felt compelled in his heart to write to the people because of this. Remember what it says, Jude, verse 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write your appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. That is the message of reconciliation, the gospel, how we lead a godly life, how we draw near to God, how we please God, and how we enjoy him. That is our only purpose in life, our primary purpose, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That is the message once for all delivered unto the saints. He goes on to say, though, but certain people have crept in unnoticed and long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These teachers who are not teaching the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, are putting stumbling blocks in people's way. Now, I was an atheist until I was about 27 years old. And one day I woke up and decided I wanted to go to church. And I went to the church. And the assistant pastor's wife gave a sermon on how hard it is to be the assistant pastor. Then they had a fellowship time. And the group of people here and here and here and here. I stood there for about 10 minutes and nobody spoke to me. I went to another church. They found out where I lived. It was closer to one of their other churches, so they just told me to go there. So I went to that church. And they talked about how young I was because everybody else was only the age of sixty-five. And they had nothing to share. Why did they have nothing to share? Because they had lost the gospel. They had turned to things that made people happy. They were... Doing the ear tickling that Timothy talk, the Paul talks to Timothy about. You remember in 2 Timothy 4 in the first five verses? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, by his appearing, by his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate themselves to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off from this. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, either work of an evangelist. Or you finish, fulfill your ministry. You know the time has come where people don't want to hear some things. I know. If you you preach what God's Word says about women in leadership, about husbands and wives, about sexuality, about the, the sanctity of life, there are people who will not want to hear. I've been in churches where I suspect half the people would get up and walk out because there are things in the Bible they don't want to accept. And they've been allowed by the pastor hiding those things, sheltering from them. I'm not going to... Dumbled death coming to church. So I'll ignore these passages that cause offense to other people. And so even a believing pastor can sometimes fall under the track. And have a church full of people that he says, "Boy, well, if I were to preach that passage, half my church will. It's not the passage's fault. If we with love and patience, honor and respect, speak the word of God, the word is true. It can change people's. And even the things that are hard to accept and hard to understand. Trust me. Growing up as an atheist in Massachusetts, going to college in Boston, I'd been exposed to a lot of unchristian idealism. There were many things in the Bible that I shook my head and my jaw dropped open and I just couldn't believe. That was what God wanted. But because God was there and working in my heart, I knew when I read it, that was the truth. And that that was what I needed to find. For God's people, the truth has power. Those who do not know God, you know, they cannot understand the things of God. Their spiritually desire recalls it. They won't understand and they won't like it. But if God has worked in their heart, how do they find the narrow door? By somebody explaining the path. Follow. How do they glorify God? Are somebody telling them, this is what God hates. This is what God loves. This is what God forbids you to do. This is what God asks you to do. Knowing that, then they can follow God. They can glorify God. They can do what I did. One day, one day I was driving in the car, listening to the Bible. I'd gotten cassette tapes. Which I was excited. My half hour commute to work each way was, done. and I'm listening to it and I just, threw my hands up in the air and said, everything I know is wrong. You know, people need to make that shift in their thinking from what their society believes, what their family believes, what they believe, and look at it from God's perspective and the words and what they should believe. When we don't tell them the whole counsel of God, we are putting a stumbling block, an obstacle that keeps them from being near to us. That is something Paul is emphatically saying he does not do. Note, in the second half of verse 3, he says that no fault can be found with our ministry. He says it can't be anything in me, not my knowledge of God. I have to have enough. That's why he says, you know, elders should be examined before they are day, because they need to have sufficient knowledge. There shouldn't be anything in his personal life. No sin or hypocrisy or foolishness that taints all of his works and make people say, I don't want to listen to that. I don't want to hear what that man has to say. He's a bad man. And not about the way we do it. It was a terrible struggle for me when I first became a Christian to seek the word in love, to not be argumentative, to be careful and treat people with honor and respect. That was too alien to my thinking as a new believer, and I had to learn that over the course of 20 years or so. I'm a slow learner, I admit it. But argumentative and belligerent belligerent people, they, they are stumbling to people receiving. Even if they're preaching the truth and preaching it faithfully and correctly. Peter says that we should do it with honor and respect. And that's really the opposite of being argumentative and belligerent. But not just our life, also our teaching. Peddlers of the word twist and deceive people to make it more appealing to their sinful hearts. They tickle our ears. They tell us the things we want to hear. They tell us the things that will make us satisfied. They tell us all the positive things. But they do not tell us the things that we need to struggle against, the things that we need to fight against. And so they put that obstacle in our way, the obstacle of ignorance. The obstacle of, oh, but so-and-so doesn't care about that, so therefore I don't need to care about that. No, God cares. It's so sad. This isn't just unbelieving teachers, but also weak and cowardly teachers. Ones who are struggling to see the church see when we're struggling, prominent. If I say something that offends, so in our day and age, there are many topics that are never spoken. Of the and that's damaging to the cause of Christ. It's an obstacle to people drawing near to God and having that intimate fellowship. Yes. And so the false teachings. In the teachings that the slave, they both stumble us. And Paul isn't speaking of that over and over again in this book, and will continue to do so. And in all of his writings, because that was the big fight of his day, and that is the fight throughout all of history. Men want to change what God says because it's hard, and do something else, teach something else, omit some parts, change some parts, make it more palpable. Paul, in this section, turns in verses 4 to 16, which we will have to cover some other time, about his struggle with the devil and his struggle with men who are trying to stumble him and trying to take God's people and lead them astray. And so he speaks some of his hardships and his joys, and it's important to go through and read that and think about that in light of... The thought of how are we stumbling people from coming to God and obeying God. Now, I could ask this of us, too. And I, I, as an pastor, encourage people to listen to pastors on YouTube or Sermon Audio, good ones. And to read good books, to learn and to grow. I mean, I've met a few pastors, and I don't understand their ego. You can learn so much if you hear somebody teach the same thing, aren't from a slightly different perspective, maybe it'll click back. I'm happy. But on the same end, we need to ask ourselves, you know, are they preaching the whole council of uh, God faithfully? Or am I being led down a broad path that leads to that other gate? And really, we should examine ourselves. In Second Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, Paul tells us to examine ourselves yeah, how are we doing? Is our life, is our deeds, is our belligerence, our anger, our sin, our corruption, is it hindering people from following God the way we should? Is it hindering them from coming? It's yeah, a question I wish I'd asked myself when I first became a Christian. I wish I'd understood that. Is it a way to help me change more quickly, not needing 20 years? To become a war faithful and honorable and loving pastor. So, as we consider this, look for those obstacles that are stopping us from getting to leading the the godly life. Look for those obstacles we are placing in other people's way, and work to examine ourselves and see how to remove. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the warnings and the admonitions and the encouragements of Scripture. And we thank you, Lord, that there are godly pastors who really do put no obstacle in anyone's way. We preach the whole counsel of God with love and respect and honor and joy, knowing that we can draw ourselves and others closer to you by knowing what you love, what you hate what you command and what you should do. I might do the things you love, and draw near to you as your precious children. And we pray, Lord, for wisdom and grace in dealing with those things that are hard to hear and hard to understand, those things which are contrary to our, our society, to our human thinking. Help us, Lord, to not put those as an obstacle in our way or anyone else's, and holy and holy to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.